Hi, welcome along to another CCAM podcast. I'm here with Ben Jury from Seven Digital. I'm going to ask a bit about uh, Seven Digital and also, like, you know, where you got things uh, started. But first of all, maybe you could just quickly introduce yourself. Hi, yeah, I'm Ben Drury, co-founder of Seven Digital. Great to be here with Dave Haynes. Yeah. So, well, let's let's start from the beginning. So, what was the what was the start of your journey? What did you do at, at university? Was it completely different to what you ended up doing in real life? So I went to university at King's College London. I was inspired to come to London from the from the sticks um, in deepest darkest Suffolk by my love of music. I was playing in bands and doing the whole Camden thing. So I went to do physics as you do at King's College London and fascinated by music and technology there. I got involved with the student union. I was helping put on bands at Tutus, which was the, the venue and we put on bands like Placebo, and through my work with the student union, I realised that they didn't have a website. This was back in 1995, which uh, most student unions, I think, didn't really have websites at that point. But I volunteered myself to set up the website, yeah. even though I had no clue how websites worked back yeah. then. But I was a fast learner and I blagged my way through HTML and early, not even CSS then, I think just HTML. So, so were you actually coding that yourself? Would you call you a developer or was it more resourceful, let's figure this out and make sure something happens? I was, I was, developing, I was developing the website, but back in those days it was pretty basic, so I wouldn't really call myself a, a full developer, even mm. though I had, I, had a, I had a background in, in running some software from before then but right yeah and um, was it was it a big success did anyone actually go go and visit the website or was it more a novelty at the time well i think i timed it pretty well because it got uh, it got very well recognized amongst the um amongst the, the hierarchy at king's college london so um it, it it did its it its job and it really led to me getting a getting a summer placement with um uh, alongside Music Week magazine, working on a new project called Dot Music mm-hmm. as at United News and Media, and through that, um, really led to what I'm doing, uh, what I'm doing today, and certainly led to what what we did at Seven Digital. Yeah, and so I mean, Dot Music, um, you know, for those for those who don't know, it, maybe you can tell us a bit more. It was was around for a while, but give us a quick overview of what Dot Music was and what your involvement was. Yeah, so Dot Music was was started in about around '95, and it was a sister website to Music Week magazine. Music Week magazine is the music industry UK music industry's mouthpiece, and originally Dot Music was just repurposing content from Music Week to the website. And so we had the official UK charts. It was the only place on the internet you could get the UK charts at that point. Had music news, music reviews, artist interviews, that kind of thing. And it became very, very popular with um, with music fans because of the charts and, and other related things. And so when I left, when I graduated, um, I went there full-time as producer on the princely sum of £15,000 a year, which at the time I thought was a, more money than I'd ever need. <laughs> yeah. How wrong was I? <laughs> and um, we we built the website up quite organically with just four or five people some decent revenue coming in from from basic early early online advertising and some other things. So was this like was this like kind of the classic kind of click banners or how were you making revenue from the site back in those days? Yeah, we did some of the um, some early banner inventory, but we also probably a lot did some sponsored features right. where brands would want to be involved with music. And yeah, through through access to the sales team at, at United News and Media, we we mm-hmm. had some. Some, uh, some access there. Mm-hmm. 
Then the dot-com boom really kicked in and United News and Media, which is one of the larger media companies in the UK, decided to set up a, 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 war, a war chest of about £200 million to invest in internet ventures. This was the same story across the industry. Rupert Murdoch did the same thing. Yeah. And they looked around their portfolio of magazines and events and things and they, they took to see what they already had. And the only things that they came up with of interest were dot music and something called Megastar, which was the Daily Star's website. Right. And they decided to invest a significant sum into dot music. They hired a, a huge senior management team. They hired a marketeer from Pepsi. They started doing TV campaigns to try and build dot music up into a significant consumer brand. Um, they also hired McKinsey's that we worked on with a, on Accelerated Project, which came up with a valuation of the business at hundred million pounds. This, wow. this was in 1999. Yeah. Um, this story was repeated across across the industry, and. This is when I, I was pretty naive, I was pretty young, I was early 20s, so I didn't really know what was going on, but I sensed that this was crazy. This, we had a pretty popular website. It was more popular than enemy.com, I remember fighting, fighting those battles, but it, it wasn't worth 100 million pounds. Yeah, yeah. Well, what do you think was the main cause of the, was it just the, the bubble? Was it you know, people overvaluing things at the time or? Collective group think, you know, it was incredible that, um, a lot of the ideas that came up in the dot-com boom, a lot of them come back now. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are as big or bigger than people said. But people just, what's the expression? People overestimate the impact of something in the short term and completely underestimate the impact of some things in the long term. Right. Investors like to think of things in you know, three to five year cycles. And people really got just way too carried away. Yeah. They, they, people realized the impact of technology and the connected technology was going to be was going to change the world but I think yeah, yeah. people got carried away yeah and I guess that back then when you were when you were doing dot music right at the beginning I mean you couldn't even there wasn't really enough bandwidth to actually play music or stream music so a lot of it was just writing about music absolutely a lot of um, maybe your younger listeners will will won't have really appreciated the the dial-up era but Mm. dot music was very much of the dial-up era we were writing about music we were we were doing um images and things like that but the idea of doing um music streaming or music downloading was um was really not not there yet yeah yeah so so what was next then what what happened so you were you were doing dot music and then and then bt came along is that right so yes in the in the year 2000 so the dot-com crash year I was uh, headhunted by BT Open World, which is their ISP division, to head up their music team in, in their content division. They, they decided that music was important to the rollout of broadband in the UK. And also, from my perspective, I knew that broadband was going to change everything for music, and I wanted to be where the heart of broadband was. So um, I left there and uh, joined BT and built up a, a team producing content and and signing content partnerships with record labels and others to get content onto the BT Open World portal, mm-hmm. yeah. as it were. Yeah. And then as consumer broadband really started to kick off in about 2002, the BT powers that be decided they needed to make more significant investments in certain areas such as music, games and sports. And they instructed us to go off and do some acquisitions to build the team faster than we might otherwise build them at BT. And then we ended up, uh, long story short, but we ended up buying Dot Music from United News and Media, who 
in the intervening period had had laid off most of those expensive management team mm-hmm. that had hired and and stripped it right back to the core team and I knew the core team was very good some of them were still friends of mine I knew that the core technology was still strong so we bought that alongside um, a games website called Games Domain mm-hmm. so that was interesting um, having having uh, worked at a company from almost the beginning and then leaving and then buying it sounds like one of those American yeah, razor yeah. stories but this this is around 2000 so I mean we're still pre the iTunes music store you know certainly pre a lot of the 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 music services that we know and love today so what was the environment there I mean music was one of the first things to really go online you know it was a big interest you know for people like BT to get people actually connecting and using the broadband services what what did it feel like back in those early days well it was exciting because the turning point was when you're when you're doing anything to do with music online when you can actually start playing music mm. and so the bandwidth um, with broadband meant that and you obviously compression technologies like MP3 meant we could actually start distributing music rather than just writing about it. Now the rights situation was a complete nightmare. Yeah. And frankly, probably still is. <laughs> but it was worse then, honestly. And so we were we were quite pioneering in terms of getting getting support from labels and publishers to distribute. Yeah. yeah. So I was gonna ask, it's always the, the thorny question about rights, but you know, when you're going to, whether it was, you know, at BT or later on with, with Seven Digital, and we'll come to that in a minute, like, how did you find the reaction of the rights holders? Did you find that everyone was just against it? Or were there some people who were like, yes, we can imagine where this is going? Or can you d- describe the general reaction? Uh, the, it, the general reaction was fear. <laughs> right. I think there were, there were the more... Uh, the the more technical people inside labels, the more in, just personally they were interested in technology, they were more open minded and more excited. And then the more litigiously minded people at labels thought this was the world, you know, the, the devil, mm-hmm. devil's work, yeah. and wanted to stop everything. So there was a there was a big dispute going inside the record labels. But the the sort of more open minded people we found, and we the good thing was we were a small company that they knew where we were, they knew where we lived, they could trust us because they could experiment with us rather than one of the big tech companies or whatever who might steal the crown jewels. Yeah, yeah. So we were able to do things that others probably wouldn't have been able to do. And certainly we didn't have to pay any of the outrageous advances which um, others have in the past. Yeah, I think it's interesting because, you know, you look at all of the, the content industries, you know, currently being disrupted by the internet and digital. So, you know, the news industry, the media industry, the film industry, but music in a way bore the brunt of that. Like it was the first to truly be disrupted by, by digital and by the internet. Certainly, um, some of it's just pure technical fact like mp3s were very relatively small compared to other things and they were relatively easy to distribute and there was the the advancements created by peer-to-peer which Mm -hmm. allowed anyone to share a significant collection and it was there was a bit of a free-for-all there was a time when it was quite exciting and people were just downloading vast amounts of music and it uh, and actually consuming more music than ever as, as well yeah, and so that, that that brings us neatly on to Seven Digital, um, which you started two thousand and three, was it? End of two thousand and three. So the, the last chapter of Dot Music was um, Yahoo came along mm-hmm. to form a joint venture with BT called BT Yahoo, and in that arrangement, BT were to provide the connectivity and 
billing relationships and Yahoo were to provide the content and services. And as part of that arrangement, Yahoo wanted to buy Dot Music and Games domain. So I was still only kind of 25, 26, and I was involved with, I'd already been involved with buying a company, and now I was involved with selling a company. Yeah. And we'd bought Dot Music for about 200,000 pounds, and alongside Games Domain, we sold it to Yahoo for about three and a half million, which in the world of BT and Yahoo is, is, is nothing. But for, from, for me at the time, it was, it was really interesting. So um, that gave me the real impetus and the real kick to go off and start my own business. Yeah, and so, but you, you were bootstrapped at first. Or actually, I, I should rewind a bit because maybe some of our listeners, um, you know, they might not necessarily use Seven Digital. But can you can you tell everyone what Seven Digital was and what was the what was the original thinking behind setting it up? So Seven Digital still exists and um, is now a public company, which we'll come on to. We the original idea behind Seven Digital was to create a marketplace for digital music. Um, we always had a kind of a B two B to see focus, if that's if that's possible, and we we were well, there was something that we pioneered. My my co-founder and I, James Kane, we pioneered at Dot Music, and we and Yahoo didn't see a place for it, so we took that as the basis of the first seven digital product, which was working for the record labels, helping them release single tracks, mm-hmm. allowing consumers to easily buy them using reverse SMS, which you know before all the payment options we have today was the most convenient yeah. way yeah. of buying content send yeah. a text because I mean that was one of the big problems right it was you know the a song only cost 99p but you know actually to to buy it that was a huge kind of overhead just to make that transaction yeah in the early days of um, digital music we were we were effectively trying to sell something that was vastly inferior to what you could get for free mm. it was wrapped in DRM it was lower quality it was a pain the user experience was painful so it was a, it was like um, trying to sell tap water when Evian was free, <laughs> right? Uh, but we persisted, and we found that people people I just fundamentally believe that people value something, and music is very important in a lot of people's lives. That they would be they would pay for it mm-hmm. if you just can get things lined up, um, and that, obviously that took a while. But yeah, our, our focus was really B two B. We worked for the record labels. We worked on some pioneering campaigns like Live Eight. We were, we did the official Live Eight download. We we did um artist stores for Coldplay and Queen and Faithless. Um, we really built built out the business and also Amnesty International and War Child, and we we built the business out that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you were you were bootstrapped for the first couple of years and actually turning a turning a profit in the early days. Yeah, um, we um we when we left BT when we did the Yahoo sale, um we left BT. We managed to get a, a payout from BT, and that helped fund the business for the first year. And we didn't take a salary for the first nine months of of two thousand and four. We did two hundred and forty thousand pound turnover in our first year, and eight hundred and fifty thousand in the second year, and we were profitable. And then at the end of the second year, we raised some VC money from Benchmark Capital Europe, who who then became a year later became Boulderson Capital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. And what was your thinking behind taking the money? And this was in two thousand and five, so it must have been a very different kind of venture capital ecosystem to a founder now going out and raising in te- 10 years later. It was interesting. The, the environment that we started the company in was a pretty bleak environment for startups. The, it was still the end of the dot-com crash. There was no money around. And we really felt that we had to 
we had to be profitable to 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 exist. Right. Um, so that that was that drive that drove yeah. us thinking about being profitable, and um, we weren't looking for money when we raised money, but we were introduced to benchmark capital through someone who was looking for money and um, benchmark decided that they liked us and they, they they made us a pretty good offer so long story short we decided to take their money and raise one and a half million pounds at a evaluation a post money valuation of six million which um, we thought was a pretty good idea um, deal for um for where we were at that time and mm-hmm. where the environment was at that time yeah and that really, really helped. I mean, it really helped us hire a t- proper technical team and helped us launch outside of the UK, get our own off- proper offices because we were just subletting from another company. Yeah, yeah. But this is still, by this by the time you've raised money, I mean, Apple has launched the iTunes Music Store. You've got a few other you know, competitors into the space. You know, I'm not sure what stage Napster was, but that was always a, always a predominant brand in, in music consumption. So what was your kind of, um, yeah, what, what were the kind of questions you had from investors? I'm sure they flagged these things. How did you get past some of those objections? You were Sure, well, we've, we've never been about trying to create a large consumer destination. Mm-hmm. So we weren't going head to head with um, iTunes or, or anything. We were always a, a B2B to C focused, even though even today you can go to 7digital.com and you can you can buy a flack of the new Adele album mm-hmm. and you can't buy that anywhere else by the way right. that's, done very, <laughs> that's done very well but the vast majority of our business the seven digital business about a 12 million turnover business has been has been B2B so right, yeah. our mission is simplifying access to the world's music providing um, com- business com- customers from Samsung to H&B to um, Panasonic yeah, to yeah. Shazam so, so you've already you've always taken this position with 7Digital like positioned it very clearly was there ever a temptation of you know we've got VC money now let's go and compete with the with the um, the big guys or absolutely there was there was one point where we did think that we could we could break through as a consumer destination yes mm-hmm. that that we did give into that temptation and uh, really we pioneered the 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 big the big turning point in digital music for me was was when it went DRM free when suddenly we could sell mp3s from all major record labels and we did that in 2008 and we we had some really early initial success and we could have um kept going but the problem was there was no margin yeah you know you're pretty much breaking even on selling mp3s so unless you're going to have absolute enormous scale it would be very difficult to make that money work Mm. but what we found is we were building something very valuable which is our technology platform and it's the same platform that everyone uses and really, we realized that licensing that almost as a SaaS business was, mm-hmm. was the way forward. Right, yeah. And you had, I mean, again, 2008 was probably the year um, when people like Spotify were coming through and kind of changing from the, from the owning music to accessing the music, moving to streaming. How, when that came along, how did you guys see that strategically and how did you react? Well, we've, we, I think we always had this view that music is music and we could adapt our platform to support different forms of consumption, which we, which we already have been doing before. We, we probably underestimated how, how different streaming was from downloading, um, fundamentally in terms of the user experience and the business model. Our whole system was architected for people paying for individual items and obviously with streaming is is very different but we managed to successfully complete that transition and Mm -hmm. 
today, Seven Digital is still actually signing, funny enough, still signing download customers who, right. who want access to high resolution music now. Right. But also streaming. We power loads of streaming services around the world, radio style streaming up to full on demand streaming. Mm-hmm. So it was difficult. Difficult transition to make, but we did manage to do it in the end. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, despite not having the, the glamour of some of the B2C brands, you're there busy building out a very kind of, um, you know, like productive company that ultimately you were able to take public. Take us from, you know, raising money from Benchmark through to actually taking the company public. What were the, what were the milestones? <laughs> so that was a 10-year period um, from 2005 to, well, nine-year period. We, um, we, we raised our second funding round just before the credit crisis really kicked in. and We closed in February 2008, and it does show you that timing is everything. Yeah. We raised four and a quarter million pounds at that point from Boulderton following on, and also um, Mark Getty's investment vehicle, who was the founder of Getty Images and, and Getty Oil Wealth Inheritor. So that was massively helpful. Then the next transaction we did was post-credit crunch. We got to know HMV quite well. HMV were very keen for to do something in digital. We were quite keen to have them as a customer, and um, we decided to sell half the company to them. So we sold fifty percent of Seven Digital for seven and seven point seven million pounds in two thousand and end of two thousand and nine. That was a good deal for us because they brought out the VCs. So we got rid of all the preference shares, which I'm sure some of your founders know the joys of. Uh, so we equalized the share structure and we took some money off the table and um, founders sometimes don't get that chance until right. the, the very end yeah. uh, and I, I would highly recommend it if, if you can and um, we ended up owning, founders and staff ended up owning 50% and H&B owning 50%. We then, with H&B going to subsequent trouble, we, we also decided to broaden the shareholder base by bringing in some more strategic investors. Yeah. And I know VCs often are very against strategic investors, and I, I can understand. I think if you take a strategic investor too early, it can, it can t- that kind of over, overly Im- influence your, your roadmaps and your plans. But later in a company's uh, lifetime, I think strategic investors can make a lot of sense, as long as they're neutral and as long as they don't have too much power. So we bought in Dolby and Imagination Technologies, who put in $10 million in 2012. For a, for a small minority stake in the company, um, that diluted the H and B stake, which was important because a few months later H and B went into administration, and mm. if they'd have owned fifty percent, that would have been quite yeah challenging. Good, good timing again. Good timing again, yeah. And so H and B went went bust, um, but they luckily they got rescued by a fund, and and they're still trading today. And there's mm. then the subsequent fund is 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 now a shareholder. Seven Digital. We also, after a couple of years of that, decided to go public in a rather interesting transaction. Um, we saw that we saw with the emergence of streaming as a B two B offering. We saw that radio was a significant part of the target base. We thought that the radio, the traditional radio broadcasters, would all have to go into streaming music in a big way rather than just simulcasting their radio station. And we also saw that Pandora was doing what Pandora does, but telcos and brands and retailers were all interested in doing streaming radio. And there was a small UK company that we'd worked with for a while called UBC Media, who were a small public company. 
Um, they're a lot smaller than Seven Digital, and um, we decided to merge with them. And because they were a public company, we, we did what's called a reverse merger, where the Seven Digital shareholders owned the majority stake of, of the merged company, and it became Seven Digital Group PLC. So that floated in June 2014. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. And, we... and that was the time for me, after a long journey, yeah. um, to step aside as CEO. Yeah. I'd, I'd done it from the beginning, and... Um, the, the the idea of being a public company CEO wasn't right for me certainly in, at that time yeah yeah and um, I, I I used the opportunity to step back a bit and and also um, I've been able to sell some shares so I've got a bit more yeah yeah and w- when you when you reflect over those um, you know those years at the helm I mean what what have been some of those very broad question but what have been some of the key learnings or things that you'd advise a founder to really think about from from day one up until the day they take the company public. Yeah, so the uh, the main thing is is around the team and the people. Um, it's a cliche, but in technology, there's nothing more important than the team. You know, you can have the world's greatest idea, but unless you've got the team to execute, then then you're you're nothing. And even if your idea is is rubbish, if you've got a good team, you can do the so-called pivot and. Uh, and hopefully uh, come up with something that will work. Yeah, because I mean, so, you built quite a resilient organization at Seven Digital to go through all those changes and to, to continue building the company. Yeah, we built a we built a great team. The core um, the core engineering was always in in our team in London. We had t- people. We have an office in San Francisco and in Luxembourg and in Auckland, New Zealand, and other locations around the world. I struggled a bit with um, remotely managing teams, especially West Coast. Mm. With the time difference and everything else, but persistence—you have to. I mean, it's another cliche, but you've just got to keep going. Persist, persist, persist. I was so conscious of that story that that the U.S. is is a graveyard for U.K. companies, and I was really, really d- determined to avoid that. Yeah, we went softly, softly. I mean, you can easily spend big in the U.S. You can easily blow your budget quite quickly, but we went really softly, softly. We hired a sort of a consultant to start with, and then. We used we just pulled in loads of favors and we we managed to and it took us ages I mean it took us ages to get licensed in the US right yeah yeah and we didn't want to pay any advances so we were very patient other companies know about this like SoundCloud you have to be patient you have to bide your time and you'll get there eventually and um, yeah but it's all yeah it's all about the people yeah and um, so we, we were talking a bit earlier as well before starting the podcast about you know rewarding rewarding employees making sure they're incentivized in the right way is there can you expand on some of the things we were we talking about earlier? yeah we were discussing um, one of the things I do regret is when we set, when we did our first fundraising we we, we only set aside 4% of the company for um, share options and I think um, in hindsight that should have been larger however as we also discussed in the UK I think it's changing now, but the staff didn't really appreciate yeah. the potential value of sh- of share options. It was maybe we didn't do a job, good job explaining them, but it was very esoteric, very far removed, completely the opposite. When I hired people in San Francisco, yeah, the salary is the salary, right, and it has to be competitive. But after that, the next thing they want to talk about is the share options, and they want to know what's the price, what's the strike price, what's the vesting period, what's the tax implications. All of these things were questions on their minds. In the UK, people often would get the share option agreement, wouldn't even sign it because they wouldn't know what it was, and they'd, yeah. they'd be suspicious of it, like it's a bad thing, and um, like it was signing them up to something. And that was a really interesting change, and um, and, and hopefully, 
uh, with uh, with more more interest in startups and more more frankly more liquidity. If there's more companies are successful in the UK, and there are more friends of friends of friends, you know, walking around making yeah. a few million quid, yeah, then yeah, um, I, then I mean, people will start to realise, and not just founders as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's a def- definitely an important thing for a, a startup ecosystem as a whole to have those have those people. You've seen the success stories. You're more likely to go and leave your job and take a risk into one of these new companies that are springing up. But it's also for the angel investments. You know, you see exactly. companies exactly. like Skype, companies like Spotify, where you know that the the even the employees, not just the founders, are able to start reinvesting those. Uh, um, you know. The kind of reinvesting from the success of those companies. Yeah, and that's certainly starting to happen. I've, I've done a few angel investments myself, and I've I've started seeing through EIS and CDIS that other entrepreneurs who have managed to get some liquidity have started giving something back. And yeah. I think it's I think it's almost you're almost morally bound to reinvest the proportion of what you've made if you've made significant yeah. sum yeah. into into other startups because yeah. that's how the system. Yeah. Yeah develops in the ecosystem definitely and it's, created. and it's investing not just the money but also reinvesting the experience that you've gained from you know going on a journey with that company and I mean yeah I guess the other advice I would give is really really look hard and be very clear about if you if you're lucky enough to have the choice of money um, what's smart money and what's dumb mm, money yeah. for, and it will be particularly for you um, smart money obviously generally comes with a name, a backing, access to more money, access to expertise, access to experience. Some of those things can actually be negative. If you don't, you don't want an interfering person who's going to start meddling with you. So you've got to be really clear on what smart money is for you. And yeah. if you have the choice, always pick smart money yeah. over dumb money. Yeah, exactly. And um, well, another probably thing... pick dumb money over no money. <laughs> and uh, another thing we talk about. I mean, obviously, we, we we're seeing it now with some of the early successes. Um, of some companies that have now had exits like Seven Digital in in Europe, um, some of those employees are now starting up their own companies. Is that are you seeing that from you know old uh, Seven Digital um, employees who are now starting their own things? Yeah, one of the things I'm most proud of is that there have been quite a few of the team, and mostly on the technical side, I have to say, who've gone off and um, scratched that itch of mm-hmm. starting their own thing. And uh, I know of at least ten companies that have started. Some have probably inevitably failed. But as some are prospering quite well, and I've always encouraged that. I think they probably think, well, if Ben can do it, then I can do it, and I'm happy with that. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And so, I mean, you know, Seven Digital in the music space, it feels like we, you know, when you look at some of the more valuable companies that have been created in in Europe, they have been in the music space. You know, take a Spotify, a SoundCloud, a Songkick. There's been a lot of companies in music inten- entertainment that have gone on to be bigger. Um, do you see more things happening in that space and what other kind of industries and sectors do you think will see more big successes coming out from Europe in? That's a great question. I have a lot of theories about this. I think that music tech in San Francisco, Silicon Valley has been wholly unsuccessful in arguably the biggest startup, music startup in the US was, Mm -hmm. you could argue, was Pandora. Yeah. And they're not even from Silicon Valley. And they only exist because of the particular nuances of DMCA blanket license, collective licensing in the US. And that's why they haven't launched over here, for example. Um, Europe's Europe's um, massively punched underweight in almost all areas of tech, unfortunately. But music is one of those shining beacons of success where we have produced Spotify and SoundCloud and the other companies that you mentioned. 
and Shazam. Well, Last FM as well. Last, Last FM, FM, Shazam. Shazam, yeah. I think there are, there are a few reasons why. A lot of it's to do with culture and interest uh, levels. You come to London, you can see several bands a night every, every single day of the week, and, yeah. and they're usually pretty good. Go to um, Silicon Valley, so it's a cultural dead zone. And even in San Francisco, there's, there's not that much going on. It's a small city. Whereas we've got London, Berlin, Stockholm, etc., etc., And there's a really thriving creative industry scene here. I, I think there's a lot of talk around fintech, and that, mm-hmm. that's for obvious reasons. But I think the creative industries, I think the, the UK and Europe can prosper in the creative industries. Fashion, I guess we're already doing quite well there. Fashion, music. Uh, TV formats, advertising, those kind of things, mm-hmm. we can we can prosper. Yeah, yeah. So whether you're angel investing or you know thinking about other spaces that could be big, where where would you be placing your bets? I'm quite interested in hardware and the whole Internet of Things thing, which is another of those um, buzzwords. But I think again, that's what an, an area where the UK has some heritage. The whole Raspberry Pi phenomena, which I'm fascinated by, is come out of Cambridge mm-hmm. and really that ecosystem originally created by the BBC Micro and the Acorn Computers which really was my youth I spent inordinate amounts of hours playing on BBC Micro and um, I think that what we're doing there is fascinating and um, obviously with the heritage of um, ARM and Imagination Technologies and other companies I think that we can be a player in hardware it won't be manufacturing probably but it would be hardware design and connected hardware design um, so I'm excited about that area I think healthcare is interesting and yeah other stuff <laughs> yeah fascinating cool well excellent well, well thanks thanks for coming on i mean i think seven digital is such a you know it's it's not a success story that's talked about as much as as maybe some others have been but um yeah it's been a fascinating just to hear about the whole journey and, and all the different moves that you made so um we're going to end the podcast in the usual traditional manner and just ask if there's any projects or products or things that you're involved in it doesn't need to be commercial it could be a, a project or a charity you're involved in anything that you want to plug to the Camp audience well my next my next project's really in stealth mode so not quite yet i'll have to come back for that but um i'm certainly involved with help trying to help new entrepreneurs um so enjoy my stuff with the sea camp also i'm involved with entrepreneur first i'm also on the board of a couple of companies one's called marmalade technologies which um has a cross-platform sdk for games development so if anyone's interested in um quickly creating games for iOS and Android have a look at Marmalade made with Marmalade um, and also on the board of a internet security company which really sells products to people like the White House and Pentagon so probably mm. not the target <laughs> audience of this of the secret I don't know we, we, we see we see quite a lot of cyber security companies actually, yeah actually so. that's an interesting it's an interesting space so um, yeah yeah and any any kind of charitable projects or things that you want to give a shout out to uh, I do I do contribute quite a lot to charity but I don't particularly support a, a, a charity mm-hmm. one charity yeah. um, cool excellent and uh, where can Seacamp listeners follow you on Twitter if you're on Twitter at Ben Drury D-R-U-R-Y cool excellent thank you Ben